At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. There's zero evidence that, re- that changing tackling style will have any effect. And even the assumption that the primary way you prevent a child from getting brain damage is to ask them to have better form is absurd on its face. And it's, te- you know, to, to say a 10-year-old, if you don't use correct form when you're 10 um, and you get CT, it's your fault because we taught you the right way to tackle. I mean, it's crazy. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, concussions. We are talking about them with two incredible experts, co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and a former WWE superstar. And in the house, we have Christian Dotson Pearson, Dr. Christian Dotson Pearson, who wrote her PhD on concussions, the emerging public health crisis, and why media advocacy is needed. Also, for our Just Stand Up Award this week, we are going to be speaking with Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress and co-host of the new sports and feminism podcast, Burn It All Down. We're going to be talking to Lindsay because she was in Seattle when the Seattle Storm played host not only to their opponent, but to Planned Parenthood. And she has the story for us because the Just Stand Up Award this week is absolutely going to the Seattle Storm. But first, a quick word with Professor CDP. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? It's great to see you again. Good to see you as well. I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about your PhD. So I want to say the title again, Concussions, the Emerging Public Health Crisis, and Why Media Advocacy is Needed. First and foremost, define what you mean by an emerging public health crisis. So after I did months and months of research, which I'm glad is over with, I found that scholars identified concussions as an emerging public health crisis because so many people were going to the emergency room. They found that annually there's about 4 million people who have concussions that go to the ER, and half of that are children. They've deemed it an emerging emerging public health crisis. Wow. Can I ask you, that 4 million number, do these same uh, scholars feel like that's an elevated number from years past? Slightly, yes, because beforehand you may have had people who did not report their concussions, and now they're seeing that there's more incidents of concussions occurring. So those numbers are a cause of concern because there's so many, and it's not just from contact sports, it's recreational sports as well. Mm. And speak a little bit about the piece about media advocacy. What is the role of media advocacy in, I guess it would be, education about concussions, um, awareness about concussions, and awareness about the crisis? So it's a little bit of everything. I wanted to do a different approach. I wanted to make sure I talked to those people at the grassroots level because surprisingly, everyone doesn't watch Sports Center. I know everyone doesn't consume sports news, but there are people who care about children and want them to have the best advice. So I figured grassroots advocates, let's see what they're doing to have their voices heard. So I did a small study, small because I only interviewed 15 people, but of them, there were nine females, six males, and some were doctors, some were just advocates in the field. And a lot of them work with children, some work with parents. And what they found is that children wanted the information for the most part, but then they had some parents who were like, no, I played and I'm fine and my kid will be fine too. So they're having issues trying to get the message across. And so their work stems on how do we get children engaged? How do we get, how do we get parents engaged to understand that this is really a problem that can have long-term effects? See, that's a fascinating observation because the stereotype that I think a lot of folks have in their mind is of the helicopter parent who's not letting their child play football or any sort of contact sport because they're the ones worried about concussions. What you're saying is that there's a lot of research that shows that the parents are actually a barrier towards this kind of education filtering down for the kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I assume that that also interferes with any idea of informed consent so young people know what they're getting into and parents know what they're getting into. Right. I had one or two participants mention that they like to go straight to the schools because there's no parental interference there and have a chance to actually speak to the student, the student athletes, let them know, 
hey, if you do have, you think you have concussion, say something, because if you don't, then who knows what will happen. And there were just, um, during the course of my interviews, it was just interesting because I went to Virginia. I drove literally probably everywhere in DMV. For our out-of-the-area listeners, the DMV is D.C., Maryland. Yes, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. So I went to Virginia and spoke to one woman who's been in the field for at least 40, 50 years. And so she was saying what she noticed about Virginia schools is that their athletic trainers are trained to notice concussions and that they're very active. But other regions weren't really as active in trying to make sure students had that information, parents had that information. So it varied across the board with the responses. Now, when you talk to people who actually work with kids on this issue of concussions, and this is one of the questions I always have, do they believe that concussions can be mitigated by teaching things like correct tackling technique? Because that's the line that the NFL is trying so hard to disseminate, and yet you hear other people who say you're basically just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic because you can't govern every single tackle to make sure it's done correctly. But for the people who have to coach it on a day-in, day-out basis, what what do they think about the idea that it can be mitigated through showing how to contact or how to bash yourself into another human's body? So I didn't reach out to coaches because – The red line with trying to interview school districts and schools like that, it's a very long process with your school's institutional review board or IRB. So I really just focused on advocates. So from what they were saying, sometimes coaches are difficult because they don't want maybe that message to get across to scare the children. And so it's interesting because one participant in particular, and I keep saying participants because I cannot reveal names. So one participant started their foundation just based on personal experience and then felt like there needed to be some type of change that occurred. And then there were other individuals who saw a need for this information to come out just because kids were coming in with headaches that were actually more than just headaches or it was a start of something new and it really ended up being a concussion but they weren't properly educated to know symptoms and signs and how to recognize them because if they did they would have known hey you need to sit out and stop playing instead of it's okay you're just dizzy continue playing anyway Mm. and one last question for you and then we'll get chris uh nowinski on the line uh dr cdp uh, what was your number one takeaway from all this work you, you put into this project? Like, what are you walking away from your PhD with knowledge that maybe you didn't have before you started or knowledge that you now feel is incredibly reinforced from before you started? What's your number one takeaway from this work? So if I can have more than one and maybe make that two. You got it. One would be the fact that there is a lot of work that needs to be done because people are not aware. They don't know where to get the information or how to interpret the information because it's so scientifically ingrained. So getting information that's layman's terms, that's easy to digest and understand is one thing I learned. And then something else is the fact that because the makeup of the NFL is 70% African-American, one of the, or actually a couple of the participants mentioned how there's a lack of outreach to certain communities. And so that is something to consider and how to get promotional material to get them to understand the dangers rather than, you know, ignoring that population altogether. So that's something else that can be done. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Dr. CDP, will you stay with us for this conversation with Chris Nowinski? Of course. Fantastic. So without further ado, let's get him on the line right now. The co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, Dr. Chris Nowinski. So, We're talking about this study that's been put forth by Dr. Ann McKee. Uh, Chris Nowinski, can you talk to us about the value of this study? What what does it tell us that we didn't already know, and what was your reaction when you saw it? Well, this is the largest case series ever published on CTE, and the the first of one type of exposure. The primary exposure of all 202 brains that were studied was uh, playing American football. it's the best description ever to understand what symptoms might be associated with the disease, how the disease stages, how it progresses. So it's it's very good in describing it. But what's striking about it and what the main takeaway from this specific paper is how easy it was for us to acquire 177 positive cases among these first 202 brains. Um, That's what really has drawn a lot of attention is just how, uh, how many cases there were. Despite the fact that every brain bank has a bias and that families are more likely to give us the brain if they thought they saw symptoms, 
even if all hundred, uh, you know, 111 NFL players had dementia and died of it, still 99% should not have had CTE. You know, Alzheimer's disease is the most common, uh, you know, neurodegenerative disease by far. So, what this means is that football is definitely associated with CTE. And you know, we uh, for public policy, you know, we're recommending assuming causation until another hypothesis on the table. And so it shows that you know football's in trouble, but we're with this resource we're set up to do some pretty incredible research going forward, because once you get into the hundreds of cases, you can start to figure out things like risk factors, genetics. Um, you can understand uh, targets for treatment. So, it's this is the first of multiple studies of this large population. Chris, you have a question? Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to know with the study that was just released and even in your past research, what type of feedback do you receive from parents or other groups who play contact sports or recreational sports? Well, you know, it's, it's sort of three ways. Some people, um, you know, have a good understanding of, of this sort of research and sort of take it for what it is, which is a you know, a, a, you know, science is science and it takes a long time. And so they understand this is alarming, but certainly not, you know, inclusive for any specific thing. Um, some people are dismissive of, dismissive of it for the wrong reasons. And some people, you know, some people take it very seriously and maybe err on the side of caution. And I think we've seen some NFL players have chosen to already walk away that this was sort of a final thorn in the side. Right. Uh, the, the John Urschel uh, story just earlier this week who's getting a PhD at MIT and I believe is only 26 years old walking away from the Ravens Correct. and he checks that box um, Chris like how seriously do you take the reforms that are advocated by the National Football League the idea that um, teaching tackling better at a younger age or uh, having harsher penalties for those kinds of hard helmet-to-helmet hits. How realistic are those in terms of stemming the tide of CTE? For stemming the tide of CTE, the, the, the best thing that, that's happened at the NFL level is that they've almost eliminated practice uh, with hitting during the season. You know, it, it's, it's, the, the data seems to be more and more clear that it's not a handful of symptomatic concussions that are causing and, and, and uh, relating to risk with this disease. It has more to do with how many thousands of hits you took over how many years. And if that's the case, you got to target all the hits. So eliminating the biggest hits while the right move for post-concussion syndrome and you know, hopefully will also slightly reduce CT risk is not necessarily enough. Um, so you know, if we look at the NFL level, the changes that have been made, which have really been fought for by the union, by the NFL Players Association, make a lot of sense. However, um, most of those changes can't be made at the youth level, haven't been made at the youth level. And we're in this bizarre world where the NFL is marketing changes to the youth level, which aren't effective. Um, you know, by funding USA football and advocating for things like uh, heads up tackling, which was fraudulently marketed for over a year by USA football is reducing concussion, even though that's not even really the issue in trying to reduce CTE. Is, is, is hard to watch. And to, to say that you know, there's zero evidence that, re, that changing tackling style will have any effect. And even the assumption that the primary way you prevent a child from getting brain damage is to ask them to have better form is absurd on its face. And it's, you know, to, to say a 10 year old, if you don't use correct form when you're 10 um, and you get CT, it's your fault because we taught you the right way to tackle. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. And so to go on that idea of policies in the NFL and changes, how can policies be implemented at like the youth level for high school and peewee leagues and even colleges? So I would argue that, you know, having you know, lived this for nearly 15 years and watched changes attempt to be made and seen the science come out, that the, I think the only responsible action to reduce risk of CT throughout the whole football ecosystem is to uh, no longer have children play tackle before high school. And that's what I would urge every parent uh, to make that choice. You know, even if they think football is the greatest sport in the world, you know, the magic's all happening in high school. And before that, you're not getting any better as a football player. There's no evidence of that. There's you know, probably more NFL players that started in high school than before. Uh, you're not learning anything and you're just exposing yourself to greater risk. So I think if we, if the, that is the, the biggest, you know, arrow we have in the quiver is if we can really have a conversation around, Hey, it's probably inappropriate to hit five-year-olds in the head 500 times every fall. 
and we can teach them to be football players without the brain trauma by playing flag or having them do anything else. So that's number one. That's number two. That's number three. Then after that, I think, you know, the model is apply what we've learned from the NFL and, and try to execute it at college and high school levels. But the problem is without unions at those levels, um, the football community is incredibly slow to adopt those reforms, right? I mean, I think during the during practices in the NFL, like during the regular season, only 3% of concussions are happening in practice. And in the preseason, there's a handful more. But it, it, currently at this stage, based on data I saw presented at the conference, still more than half of concussions are happening in, in college in practice. And so that is a correlator for how many hits they take to the head. They're just wasting all these hits to the head in college because the players can't say, stop doing this to me. And the high school levels have not adopted strict, strict reforms. And so I urge the people at those levels to you know, really think of the player's health first as you're adopting these policies and worry about how good the product is on the field later because that's really not what it's about. Chris, do you think that high school football and college football, and I'm asking you to look a little bit in the crystal ball, do these institutions even have a future? Because I think a lot of people look at the NFL and they think, well, these are adults making adult decisions. They know the risks. They're paid a lot of money. That just is what it is. But when you're talking about particularly something like college, where you're supposed to be developing your mind, and we're saying this is an activity that ad, that is really an agitator for brain damage, or you're talking about high school and you're talking about minors, and that it raises the whole issue of informed consent. I mean, are we looking at a future where high school college football will either be legally or morally untenable the more we know? Uh, we're looking at some hard conversations going forward, and I think what, the things we choose to do today will influence what happens because – yeah, I think when we talk about ethics, the, the age issue goes away in college, right? These guys are 18, so they can go serve their country in war. They can go play a football game if they want to. However, the, the way we have it set up today, that the players have no rights, that they are not paid, and they don't have their health care coverage taken care of long term, um, is absurd when their coaches are getting now paid $10 million a year. Um, that's unacceptable. And I think if you know, you know, I was disappointed that college players didn't unionize. I think they have to. I don't think no one's going to hand them this, but it's something they deserve and something they need, and you know, they need to fight for it. Regarding high school, you know, I think that that'll be a harder question because high school, you know, that players definitely aren't old enough to accept this risk, um, and you know, we have to consider the fact that you know, it's it's sort of strange that these the education system is the top provider of concussions you know, for that age group in the country, right? That's happening through school where they're trying to be learning stuff all day and then losing it when they get hit in the head 50 times that night. So um, I think we, I think it's up to high school football to you know, really, again, reform first and make it as safe as possible. They may find they, if they work really hard to make it as safe as possible, it's not that much worse than other sports. And then we're willing to accept that, you know, soccer has some hits to the head, hockey has some hits to the head, football does too. Maybe we get there and it's okay. But um, if we don't start making changes now, you know, the ri- I think the risk that everyone's worried about is we say everyone sort of agrees that kids shouldn't play for high school. But I think people in the football community are worried if we if we say that kid, kids will not then transition from other sports back into football at high school. If they don't enjoy flag um, that they'll they'll end up in another sport like soccer or lacrosse because those things are becoming year round sports. So um That'll be the, you know, I'm sure we'll start having age minimums and then it'll be a race to how safe can you make this game before people give up on it. Okay. And I could just jump in with a quick follow-up there. Um, it's interesting because you, you, you mentioned um, other, other sports and you, know, you hear a lot of times that defenders of American football, they mention things like the concussion rate in women's soccer, which is quite high. Uh, but do we have any, any research at all about CTE links with concussions in women's sports either anecdotally in terms of changes in behavior like we've talked about the nfl early onset alzheimer's or people who've donated their brains to places uh like where dr mckee and you work we haven't seen it in uh in women athletes yet and that's i think a a lot of that's it's two two issues one is title nine we didn't used to hit women in the head like we do today through sports uh, so there aren't a lot of older uh, women who took thousands of hits to the head that are dying. 
And uh, the other fact is I think people are just more comfortable donating their father or brother's brain or their son's brain than their mother, sister, or daughter. That's what I'm sort of hearing on the phone when I'm making those calls. But also as an issue of fame that this is, you know, the majority of our cases are football because football is the most popular sport. And when those athletes die, you know, it hits the news and we can track them down. And the football community is so concerned about this that people are signing up left and right to pledge. Uh, we aren't seeing that same concern in soccer because we don't have the same number of cases. We do have multiple soccer cases with CT in men. It's been also been seen in Brazil and, and England and brain banks there. Um, so we know it's real. And we don't, it, you know, we're hoping it's not as bad as football. It, pr- it probably isn't as bad in terms of prevalence, but we can't be sure until we look. Um, but th- that's also why, you know, we spent, you know, 2014 and 2015, um, you know, battling U.S. soccer to institute an age minimum for heading and successfully that they, you know, you can't head before 11 now because we, we saw the writing on the wall that uh, if we don't make these changes. And so that's why I think, you know, again, we're not saying don't play soccer, but we are saying don't head the ball repetitively before high school because it's unnecessary and just adds risk. Mm. So then as a follow-up to that point about the lack of information available for female athletes in the effect of CT on their brain, is it safe to say that there's a stigma that exists for that particular demographic? And if so, how do you go about removing it so that female athletes feel comfortable having their brain donated for study in the future? Yeah, so there may, there may be a stigma. It is hard to know. Um, but what we're doing to combat that is we are actively recruiting as many high profile female athletes as we can to pledge. I mean, uh, Brandy Chastain was probably our greatest success when she pledged, uh, you know, it was front page news in the New York times and USA today and Boston globe. And we, and we, we, we thought we might see an uptick in, in women, uh, donating. We did see an uptick in pledges about 40%. If you remove football, nearly half of our pledges are female. So I think there's, certainly great awareness in the active athlete community and recently retired. But the issue is, you know, most of those people aren't going to die for a long time. And so I think there's just an absence of seven year old women with a history of heading soccer balls. And so it's going to unfortunately take a while before we have those answers that, that uh, women need to understand how their risk is relative to men. But I don't expect it to be much different. I don't mean, there's no question that there's going to be soccer players with CTE that are female. Mm. And, and a question for you also, Chris, here, and thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm very interested in the world of professional wrestling and how these things intersect, and I know that's a world you're very familiar with. I don't know if you if you still keep up with it at all with pro wrestling. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, um, WWE is a big funder of our work, and I um, once a year I will go to the – main roster and and then to the uh, developmental roster NXT and give them a, an hour lecture on concussions and what we're learning and, and how they should affect what they do or change what they do or some guidelines around uh, minimizing their risk. Well, that's fantastic. And I think I now know how you're going to ask this question, answer this question. But one of the <laughs> things I was really curious about is that it's, it's so lately in WWE, you've heard about, um, superstars, if you will, sports entertainers, uh, having to step away from matches because of concussions. And I was, I sit at home and I wonder, is this a work because, in other words, is this something that they're just saying because concussion is so much in the mainstream media, so it makes it seem more like a legit sport, you know, like when they've had like fake union battles on WWE and whatnot, or is this like an actual thing where there's hyper concern about concussions now in wrestling? And I, I, Hey, please take it away. You know, it's one of the most rewarding things for me is, you know, I, so I lost my career there because of concussions that I wasn't telling anyone about that were, you know, from accidents in the ring. And I, I just didn't understand or think that, you know, going back out there with a headache and feeling nauseous was a problem. Um, and, and so that, that culture has, has changed more and reacted more positively to the, the professional wrestling world and WWE than, than really any other sport. Because, I mean, I think part of it, absolutely. I mean, they, 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 they've embraced this. I mean, I think, you know, I think when you see the difference between, uh, you know, the articles today about the NFL now refusing to, uh, fund their commitment to the National Institutes of Health uh, to study CTE because they weren't happy with the studies the NIH chose because the, because they were you know they were real studies and not the garbage that they've been funding for so long. 
Um, I think we see where the NFL's heart is, but WWE has actually, you know, given us unrestricted gifts that have, that have helped support like the study that came out on the NFL players and studies that have identified, um, you know, CT and professional wrestlers. So they want to get to the bottom of this. And I think it's because, you know, it's, you know, partially it's leadership at the top and partially it's a different business model. Like let's, let's remember that, um, you know, that's a, that's a, it's an entertainment, you know, show that, that they they prefer to have zero concussions, right? It's not like the hits to the head are necessary for them to put on an entertainment product. And then um, yeah, everyone's working together. And so besides the prevention aspect, they want to make sure that guys have nice long careers, right? I mean, if you if you see guys like Ric Flair still able to step into the ring at 60 years old, you know, it means that they took care of their brain earlier on. Um, so they don't have to hang it up from concussions. And so that longevity is critical. So when you see someone like Daniel Bryan, who I think you're referencing having to step away at the top of his career due to concussions uh, and really being forced to step away, he was still willing to wrestle. Um, I think you realize that the financial consequences are enormous to the entire company. You lose a superstar to a concussion that, you know, shouldn't have happened or it was mishandled. And so that's why I think they're very hyper uh aware of this and concerned about this and working really hard to change that culture because it's good for business. Mm. And do you think it might also be connected to the fact that someone like Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington football team has obviously never actually been on the field or had a concussion while WWE, you have people like, you know, triple H and even the McMahon family who have been in that ring and have taken their knocks or is that just me waxing too poetic about this? Um, no, I don't think you're waxing poetic at all. I think there is definitely an awareness uh, in, in leadership that they all have skin in the game, that they all have taken hits to the head uh, as part of uh, getting into the ring. And so they have an incentive. I think, I, mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, most of the guys who own NFL teams have never, have never uh, reached a high level of the game and so don't have the same risks. Mm. Uh, his name's Chris Nowinski. Dr. Chris Nowinski. Oh, last question. I got to throw it. How far away do you think we are from the kind of test where they could just uh, something very quick, blood, saliva, something of that nature, quick x-ray scan, and then know among living players whether or not CTE is, is there? Yeah, that's, it's not easy in the short answer. The short answers are probably a few years away, but not too many years away. The long answer is we still can't actually diagnose a disease like Alzheimer's disease as anything similar with 100% accuracy while you're alive. So we'll use scans, we'll use blood tests, we'll use, we'll use multiple tests to get us to a level of accuracy where clinicians are, can say they're 90% confident that their diagnosis is correct, but we'll still only know when we look at the brain. That just takes data. That takes following people over time. And so that's one of the great things about the studies going on at Boston University is that both the brain bank in partnership with the clinical research study are going to be the fastest ways that we get those answers so that, that people can learn how to differentiate CT from other diseases while people are alive. But it just takes a ton of work and there's just not that much funding in the space. And that's why it's disappointing to see, you know, the NFL, you know, take, you know, not follow through with their $16 million gift, which would be, you know, the largest, you know, ever in the space. So um, for one specific study. So but it, unfortunately it'll take more work to get there so that guys like me have answers and not have a better idea of what might be coming. Mm. Dr. Chris Nowinski, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thanks, Dave. Real pleasure. And now a quick word from the second best podcast hosted and sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense. Look, this is rapidly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. It's hosted by John Wiener. It is politics without the boring parts. Every week, he speaks to Nation magazine journalists and newsmakers about the issues that you care about. Not the issues that the mainstream media is telling you to care about, but the issues that you actually do care about. The podcast is called Start Making Sense with John Wiener. It is really good. Please check it out, download an episode, subscribe to it over at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. Just stand up. 
This week, it goes to the Seattle Storm, and we have someone who is in Seattle for their groundbreaking game where they played host not just to their opponent, but to Planned Parenthood. And on the line, we have someone who is there, a sports reporter at Think Progress, the co-host of the new sports and feminism podcast, Burn It All Down. You can follow her on Twitter at Linz Sports, L-I-N-Z Sports. Her name is Lindsay Gibbs. And these Storm owners, when they bought the team from when the Supersonics were leaving for Oklahoma City, they were planning on taking the WNBA with it. And these three women stood up and bought the team to keep professional basketball in Seattle. And when they did it, they said, this is at the intersection of business, advocacy, and then social justice. So social justice was always a part of their business plan and always a part of what they wanted to do. So Lindsay Gibbs, uh, talk to us a little bit about what you saw in Seattle, what you saw at the rally before game time, the Planned Parenthood rally before game time. It was incredible. I mean, it was about 45 minutes before the game began. This was a big game. It was nationally televised on ESPN. There, The whole plaza was pretty much filled with I'm really bad at estimating crowds, as was everybody I talked to, but let's just safely say hundreds of fans in their Planned Parenthood shirts, you know, listening to these speakers. And um, Amani Boyette, the Chicago Sky player, was there briefly. She did have to go get ready for the game, but it was pretty incredible that she came to the rally at all. Uh, Holly Rowe of ESPN also stopped by. And then there were speeches from the Planned Parenthood CEO of the Pacific uh, Northwest and Alaska. And then there was a speech by one of the storm owners. And for me, the most powerful speech came from a Planned Parenthood. She both works for and she's a patient for Planned Parenthood. And she talked about getting an abortion that very day. She talked about her first abortion, and then she talked about how actually she had had an abortion that very day. She wasn't planning on that, but that's just how the timing ended up working out. And it was really powerful because a lot of times in conversations about Planned Parenthood, people like to gloss over the abortion uh, topic because it's it's the most politically charged part, and they like to rightly talk about how much else Planned Parenthood does outside of abortions. But I was really proud to be at a rally that just went there and just talked about it and tried to break that taboo. Mm. Yeah, that's what it was like in the the early 70s when they would do these kinds of rallies, is that people would talk openly and confessionally um, about their own experiences. So to destigmatize these issues, wow. Um, I don't know if Chris, if you had a question, I could always just, just keep going. Um, just like a quick follow up. So why is it important for female athletes to be at the forefront of social issues and how do you think it impacts their fan base? I think it's huge. I mean, women's sports in itself are a political statement often because, you know, they're pushing the boundaries of what we think women like to do and, or what we think women should be doing. And I think that's why you see so many female athletes who are on the forefront of the social justice movements is because they are naturally pushing boundaries. It's something that they always do. They don't have the the privilege that the male athletes do to look away from politics, to look away from um, social issues. So I think that's why, and you see it, it matters for their fans. It matters for sports as a whole. And what we've seen with the, what the WNBA has done is it's pushed the male sports leagues forward. It's pushed the men's sports leagues uh, to stronger stances of activism as well. That's, that's really interesting. Um, given all the drama that's happened this week in DC around uh, the effort to end uh, healthcare in this country for millions of people and with Planned Parenthood being such a central part of the demagoguing by Republicans to end healthcare. Uh, were people speaking about that at all, about the survival of Planned Parenthood relative to the Republican Congress? They were. The day I was there, I mean, if you've been following this healthcare process, you know that it's been lots of ups and downs. And the day of the rally was right after one of the bills had been killed. It looked like we had gotten one victory, you know, that there was one victory for the progressives. And so everyone was talking openly about that and was having a moment of celebration and was talking about how important it is 
that we have rallies like this so that we come together to celebrate and then we're together when we need a fight as well. I know you spoke to the female owners of the storm, correct? Yes. You were able to speak with them. And you're, by the way, you're reporting on this, on the Seattle storm, the Planned Parenthood protest, the game itself, I mean, has just been so stellar. Speaking to the owners, do they see a continuum between their sponsorship of this event and supporting Planned Parenthood with the actions of players a year ago supporting uh, Black Lives Matter movement and standing up against police brutality? Do they see a continuum between these issues or do they look at it um, in a segmented way? I think they do, but I think it's not, it's hard to draw a direct line, but it's more a part of the environment the WNBA has created as a whole. And these storm owners, when they bought the team from when the Supersonics or Sonics, I forget which one, Supersonics were leaving for Oklahoma City, they were planning on taking the WNBA with it. And these three women stood up and bought the team to keep professional basketball in Seattle. And when they did it, they said, this is at the intersection of business, advocacy, and then social justice. So they social justice was always a part of their business plan and always a part of what they wanted to do. And that's, that's really special. And I think that, I mean, in my opinion, the WNBA's Black Lives Matter protest last summer, the unity that they displayed, the fact that it was entire teams making these stands, doing these media blackouts, the fact that it was the white players along with the black players, which is something you did not see in the NFL. I mean, they really led the way and I think changed the game for the WNBA. It's hard for me to see this happening without that. So then, Lindsay, going back to the event itself, could you just talk about the counter-protesters? What did you see? Paint the scene for us a little bit. Honestly, there was one person there with, you know, the the sign we're used to seeing with the, you know, the fetus. And that was it. I mean, it was a very pro-event. And I mean, Seattle is obviously very progressive. And so that helps. But I was surprised. It was not... I'm sure that there were people there who were uncomfortable with it, and I'm sure that there were players and people involved in the organization to some extent who, you know, didn't want to be waving the sign and speaking out about this. But because the owners set the tone for this, because this was coming from the top, anyone who didn't fully agree or wasn't fully comfortable knew that they kind of just had to swallow with that, that this is what they're doing the owners were very clear to the players, to the fans, you don't have to join in on this. You know what I mean? You don't, we're not going to force you to be in a PSA or force you to come to the rally, but it, but this is what we're doing and we are not ashamed of it. You know, this is also very important for listeners in a broader sense because online there and on social media, there was a lot of noise about there being some kind of large disruptive counter protest. And oftentimes that's all it is, is noise. It's actually a way to try to intimidate people from showing up. And so I just, I love cataloging the real life examples of, you know, somebody who is, you know, hasn't, you know, just trying to actually start trouble and keep people from organizing and using fear to do that. And, you know, and and the reality that only one person showed up. Yeah, the reality is it was a very well attended game on a weekday night Um, It wasn't a sellout crowd, but there were almost 9,000 people there, which is a great attendance record, not or attendance number. And like I said, it was a very positive vibe from all around. There was no tension. And were you able to talk to um, many, I I know the answer to this, but for my audience, were you able to talk to any Storm players and get thoughts from them about this event and how they felt about it? Yeah, I talked to both Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart after the game, and they were very nice. It was actually ended up being a really tough loss for the storm. And as a reporter, you never know how players are going to be after a tough loss, but both of them were really open and really thrilled for this night for the organization. And they just couldn't speak highly enough about their owners, about the importance of standing up in today's climate and about the fact that they were just proud to be a part of it. And that was really, really powerful to have those I mean, Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird are two of the most famous and successful women's basketball players we have right now. Speaking of the players that you spoke with, how do you think Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart, as long as their teammates, the owners, anyone affiliated with the team can continue to engage the community so that this type of rally is not just a one-time thing, that it becomes something that's done throughout the season and even during the off season? 
Yeah, I think that you're going to keep seeing it. I mean, it went so well. And it was a great week for the Seattle Storm overall because they held the All-Star game there a few days later. So it was just a really successful week for the franchise. Both Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart have become much more comfortable speaking out recently. Brianna Stewart has had kind of a political awakening over the past year from the Black Lives Matter movement. She was at the airport to protest the Muslim ban when that was going on in February. And then, of course, with this. And Sue Storm just recently spoke to ESPN and came out of the closet. I'm sorry if you want to say that again. You said Sue Storm, who is, of course, the invisible woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, and Sue Bird is anything but invisible. But she is a superhero to me. <laughs> yes. <so. laughs> Apologies. Thank you for catching that. So Sue Bird recently, just actually two weeks ago, spoke to ESPN and came out of the closet it and or out of the closet is probably the wrong way to phrase it but spoke publicly about her sexuality for the first time and also talked about you know the racism and the sexism and the things that the WNDA fights against and with this ownership group they told me and I'm I have a piece coming out next week sometime I don't know if it'll be up at the time of this podcast but the owners told me that they've already heard from other owners in the WNDA who were thinking of doing similar things to this that's huge because that was really kind of my last question is how much of this event that you were at, the fact that you basically had a, a pro sports franchise sponsoring a political advocacy rally that wasn't like something brutally anti-LGBT like you've seen with some major league teams, but right. something that was actually progressive. How much of that credit to that do you give to the particular ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest in Seattle versus the WNBA. I'm sure it's not just one or the other, but I was curious about how you doled that out percentage-wise because I think maybe that speaks to whether or not we could see this replicated. I think that Seattle was the perfect place to start it, you know? But I think that you're going to see more events, maybe not necessarily always with Planned Parenthood, but the WNBA as a whole is getting more fearless by the moment. And Lisa Borders, the president of the WNBA, who has not always been great when talking about uh, advocacy issues, she, of course, famously fined the players for their Black Lives Matter protest last year, although she did rescind that fine. And she talked in her press conference with the press at the All-Star Game. She talked pretty fearlessly about what it's like to be a league that is predominantly black, that is fighting for civil rights, that is a female league, that is fighting for women's rights, and that is fighting for LGBTQ rights. And she talked about how proud she was for the Seattle Storm for their Planned Parenthood protest. So whereas in other leagues, you see both owners and commissioners and people um, avoiding these topics, the WNBA has in a year gone from avoiding to completely embracing. And I think you're just going to keep seeing greater things. Wow. Her, her name is Lindsay Gibbs. She is indefatigable, if I said that correctly. <laughs> I, I, I often get that wrong. Lindsay, I always ask this of guests. Uh, what kind of music are you listening to these days? What's your music that gets you going these days? You know, unfortunately, these days I listen to music mainly when I'm writing. And so it's usually pretty mellow music. I know some people can listen to But I've been, look, I the one thing about me, this is not very progressive, but I'm from the South and I love country music. And Chris Stapleton, I've had his album on repeat lately. So Boom. <laughs> Uh, Lindsay Gibbs, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dave. That was Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress. Remember, please listen to her sports and feminism podcast, Burn It All Down. She's the co-host, and people can follow her on Twitter at Sports. That's the Just Stand Up Award. Very inspiring. Let's go to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, which is less inspiring but absolutely satisfying. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week goes to the Dallas Cowboys for cutting wide receiver Lucky Whitehead. And I swear, the name Lucky Whitehead in this context, Professor, I mean, mean, this is almost like a Charles Dickens novel or something. Lucky Whitehead. (laughs) If people don't know the story, Lucky Whitehead was cut following a quote-unquote shoplifting arrest and failure to appear in court. There was only one problem. Lucky Whitehead 
did not shoplift anything, and was not even in the shop where the lifting took place. Whoever was arrested just said to the cops, my name is Lucky Whitehead. And Lucky Whitehead was still cut. Now, the most disturbing part of this story to me is that Lucky Whitehead apparently went to head coach Jason Garrett, looked him in the eye, and said, it was not me. This is ridiculous. And Jason Garrett apparently looked him in the eye and said, I don't believe you. Then Jason Garrett did a press conference that was so weird, so bizarre, so something out of the worst excesses of Stalinist Russia or East Germany or the Trump administration. I mean, you have to hear what Jason Garrett said. Do you regret how you handled Lucky Whitehead's situation, given that the police came out today and said he wasn't involved? And do you feel the need to address the team over this issue? Uh, yesterday, we made a decision that we deemed to be in the best interest of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, we're standing by that decision. We're going to move on. But that decision was based on the idea that he had been arrested last month, correct? Uh, yesterday, we made a decision that we thought was in the best interest of the Dallas Cowboys. And we're going to stand by that decision. We're going to move on. It's the truth. We made a decision that we thought was in the best interest of the Dallas Cowboys. Why was it made before you came to camp? Again, guys, I'm not going to continue to address this. Uh, we made a decision that we thought was in the best interest of the Dallas Cowboys. We're going to stand by that decision. We're going to move on. Something that we don't know, but it hasn't been reported. We know a lot of things about our players that you guys don't know. I guess the difficult thing is if you know all this about your players, then he was already on the team. And the only thing that changed in the last 24 hours was this misidentification of an arrest. And if that was the case, then why was he on the team in the first place? Guys, we made a decision yesterday that we thought was in the best interest of our team. And in evaluating the particular situation and the context of that situation, uh, we felt like we made a decision uh, in regards to Lucky that was right for our team, and we stand by that decision. Professor, mm. what was your reaction when you heard the saga of Lucky Whitehead? Well, first of all, I, at, I've i never been a Cowboys fan. I'm just going to say that. They're America's team. They're not my team, so I don't oh. care. Mic drop already. Um, and you can fight me in my mentions if you want to. I'll probably just ignore you. But anyway, so I find it interesting that here's a team that allowed a man in Greg Hardy with – you know, allegations of domestic violence play on the team and be a leader, quote unquote, if that's what you want in a leader. Yet here you have a player who even told the coach straight up, it wasn't me, I wasn't there, and he still loses his job. So this speaks to the fact that the Cowboys are just repeating that culture of it's okay to be women, it's okay to, you know, do anything on your time that, you know, we, you're under investigation for it or not, you know, we'll still let you play. But if you can admit to not even being somewhere and that your name was used falsely without your knowledge and still get cut, I just, I can't respect a team or, you know, players who think it's okay to kind of roll with that. And then you have somebody who's innocent of a crime despite his past doings who still gets fired and now has no job. There's a really disturbing current of racial profiling that runs through this because the, the absolute supposition by Jason Garrett and company was, well, of course you're guilty. And it's like, well, why? He said he wasn't even there. And that's the part that bothers me so much because this would have been very easy to check. I don't know if they took a mugshot of fake Lucky Whitehead. I mean, he was arrested. Right. But at the very least, a 30-second phone call – and to even say something like, hey, this lucky whitehead that you arrested, did he look like a professional athlete? Because most people don't look like professional <laughs> athletes. Yeah, and if he just said, nah, you know, the guy might have responded, nah, he was kind of like, you know, he had a little, you know, a roll of fat around his belly. Yeah, a little dad bod. He was about five foot eight, you know. Then you could just be like, okay, it's not the five foot ten, 160 pound, run four three forty guy who's in our camp. Like it would not have taken a lot to figure this out. And the supposition of guilt bothers me a lot. But you said something really smart that I want to absolutely like, like gnaw onto like a dog on a bone here because it's like Dallas Cowboys, America's team doing something like this. They earned that name. 
that's pretty America's team right there to just cut somebody on that basis. But then think about Venus. It's almost like that same situation where people went after her before the videotape was released or full investigation was done and they wanted to break her down. But, you know, in true black girl magic fashion, she made it to the Wimbledon finals despite that. Amazing. Lucky Whitehead doesn't even have a chance to prove that it wasn't me. Let me show you it wasn't me. I'm committed to the team because you're cut. We don't have time for the shenanigans, but we sure do miss Greg Hardy because he was a leader in the locker room. Unbelievable. Very well said. And the connection to Venus, I mean, these connections are so tight because you really do wonder about the double standard and if it would have happened if they were of a different shade in each case. Well, so that's just your sit your ass down, and it's to the Dallas Cowboys. Sit your ass down. Oh, that feels so good. Just go eight and eight. Yeah, go go seven and nine. Go go six and ten. Yeah, even better. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, in this era, we need independent media more than ever, and The Nation's been doing it for 150 years. This week, you got to check out the issue. We got articles about labor's resurgence in the UK, an article about Detroit's Muslim community, and an article about Native Americans and education, all by some of the best journalists in the country. Remember, you can get those in the physical magazine. Those things do still exist. Or you can get an online subscription and get full access to every issue. So go to thenation.com slash subscribe. It is an invaluable resource, and it is something that you should support. And remember, when you support The Nation, you are also supporting the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now... For the part of the show, it's becoming one of our most popular segments. It's called Kaepernick Watch, where we assess the latest comings and goings, rumors and what have yous with Colin Kaepernick. And this week, we had quite the big one because Colin Kaepernick, it actually looked for a moment that he was going to get signed, that he was going to get signed by the Baltimore Ravens. And in so many respects, this looked like Not that it would happen, but that it could happen. That if the stars were going to have to align, you had to have somebody who was an owner of a team who's somewhat of a maverick. Steve Bishotti of the Ravens checks that box. you got to have a general manager who thinks in a way that isn't just about how do I best represent the most right-wing possible ideas in the National Football League. Ozzie Newsome, one of the few black general managers. And then you have to have a coach who has some sort of relationship with Colin Kaepernick. And in John Harbaugh, you have someone whose brother, Jim Harbaugh, wrote an essay about Colin Kaepernick in Time magazine for their Time 100 issue and has spoken out with incredible affection about Colin Kaepernick, even saying that he thinks Colin Kaepernick is good enough to lead a team to a Super Bowl victory. So the Ravens looked like this could be the spot. Joe Flacco got injured, for those who don't know. He's their not-quite-elite quarterback. He fell off. And Colin Kaepernick was there for the signing. But this didn't quite happen. Instead, someone named David Olson was signed. David Olson is someone, Dr. CDP, who threw for one less yard in college than you did. He threw for negative one yards as a college football player. You can't be serious, man. And now he is on an NFL roster. You cannot be serious! He threw for negative one yards. That's it. I mean, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, we, we've so moved past uh, anger about the pariah status of Colin Kaepernick, and we've moved into this era now, I think, of farce. It's absolutely farcical that Colin Kaepernick is not on a team It's the sort of thing that I think exposes the National Football League in so many ways. Because what are some of the mythologies about the NFL? That it's a meritocracy. Everybody good enough gets to play. Uh, Another one is that they actually care about players. When you mentioned Greg Hardy before, and I think it says something about them, that they'll be fine with players except if they dare stand up for black lives. And when you have a sport that destroys black bodies, as we talked about with Chris Nowinski at the start of the show... I mean, it really does say something that somebody who actually stands up for these issues, someone who is, in the words of my friend B.J. and Bain, 
kind of like a walking United Way ad in terms of all the money that he gives away. Someone who's been a positive in every community. Someone who's every locker room loves him. Someone who brought a team within a play of a Super Bowl victory against these very Baltimore Ravens. Can't find a team. Does it make you doctor at all? Like make you just like not even want to watch the NFL anymore? I mean, does it make you ha- like what, what's the level of alienation that it provokes in you this entire thing? It's one of those things where it's surprising because here's a league that makes money, has ads, everything else. And as I said earlier, the league is 70% black men, but yet and still here's one who is trying to exercise his right as a human first player second. And people are getting mad. Mm -hmm. They're getting upset for whatever reason, but it's the reality that goes on in the world. So you can't be that blind to reality that you don't know what's going on in these neighborhoods, that you don't know what's going on in the lives of the very players that play for you and produce this product. So to willingly and openly just blackball Colin to not allow him a chance to come back and we're name grabbing people out of bags with negative yards and having Michael Vick become an expert on identity and how to, rebrand yourself and hair care 101 and whatever he was talking about whatever but it's one of those things where it's just how do you go about being a part of the nfl in being an owner and you're not respecting the rights of your players because i feel like if he were a basketball player adam silver might have just said what do i need to do to support Mm -hmm. how can i support you what do we need to do and You know, it's just different, and that just speaks to the tone of perhaps ownership, the commissioner of the league and Roger Goodell, and maybe it's time for a change to come, but the only problem is are the owners open to that change if it's something that won't benefit them? Because essentially, new commissioner, new way of life, new way of doing things, or even opening up ownership to more minorities might be more you know, the easier way to go to get some of these, you know, athletes feeling comfortable to speak out without fear. But again, it just comes down to the fact that he has a right to, you know, Colin had the right to protest and do what he wanted. He wasn't bothering anyone. And Jamel Hill and Michael Smith have said it plenty of times that they shouldn't have to make others feel comfortable, you know, in Mm -hmm. their attempts to protest. And so you can't, you know, if you have to be uncomfortable, you just have to be uncomfortable because I have something to say. It's kind of the point of protest, too. Right. I'm going to do it. So whether you like it or not, either educate yourself and figure out why I'm doing it, but don't just shun me and tell me no. Figure out why you're uncomfortable. Exactly. And and the problem is that I think when it comes to owners in the NFL, that's entirely why he can't find a job. Um, Because the owners will say, well, it's because of the fans and we're worried of pushing fans away. And this incredibly bogus study was also pushed this week Mm -hmm. about in a big headline, like fans turned off NFL games because of anthem protests. Ooh, well, there's a solution. But then you look deeper into the numbers and saw that that was a totally misleading headline. It was effectively 3% of fans. Uh, Sports viewership has dropped across the board in major sports, sports without anthem protests. And it it was so interesting that that study came out the very week that the Ravens were assessing whether or not to sign him. Uh, Howard Bryant, who's been a guest on the show, writes for ESPN. He thought that was, you know, that was fishier than some some day-old mackerel. Like the fact that that study just happened to come out as they're assessing whether or not to sign him in Baltimore. See, and I I have members of my family, too, who they're my in-laws, who I would describe as right-wing Baltimore Ravens fans, and it's a big group of them, and I immediately polled them, and they all said pretty much, I think, what most NFL fans would say, which is, can he help us win? And I was like, yeah, is he an upgrade? And then, yeah, and then it's like, cool, let's get him in here. Right. You know, that, that's like, that was like the extent of their political thinking about Colin Kaepernick. Is he an upgrade to what we have? And so to me, and I think that's most sports fans, I think at most it would be a 24-hour fan anger story, and then they would move on to, well, who's going to be our backup running back? I think this is all about owners doing a shot across the bow at other players who are in the league now. I think they want Colin Kaepernick to be a cautionary tale. We're at the point where it's less about him than it's about the NFL trying to crack the whip on everybody who's on teams right now. It's just interesting (sighs) overall. It is. Very well said. Interesting overall. 
And where in the world will he be next week? That's a good question, too. Where in the world is Colin Kaepernick? My favorite kids show. Well, (laughs) that's all we have for this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. I really want to thank my co-producers, David Tigabu and Daniel Baker. I especially deeply want to thank Professor CDP, Dr. CDP for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was amazing. For everybody who wants to contact us on the show, you can reach me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports or at our Twitter feed at Edge of Sports Pod. You can always listen to back issues of the show. I always say back issues instead of back episodes because I'm a print man at heart. Go to edgeofsportspodcast.com and you can always call us. We're going to do extensive calls the next time we have a show. Uh, 401-426-3343. Tell us what you agree with, what you disagree with, and we will air out your grievances. Thanks to our guests, Chris Nowinski and Lindsey Gibbs. And remember, please subscribe to the show at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Please tell a friend. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.